Now, as I said, we're in this series on change, and today, I want to begin by talking to, talking to you about how every life can be changed, how every person can be changed. And frankly, there is no better place to look than the scriptures. And I told you we're looking at lots of uh, names of people that ended with us. Today, I want to look at Zaki us. So read the story with me, Luke chapter 19. It says this, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of, what is it? Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. I can relate to this guy. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost. Now, Father, as we just take a few minutes here and, and talk about your word and what it means, we just ask that you would uh, enlighten us to your truth and teach us, God. Lord, compel us to serve you. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know the hope of life change that you offer, I pray you would bless them in these moments. God, we thank you for how good you are in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Now, from the start, I want to mention here that Zacchaeus was two things. He was a tax collector and he was wealthy. Now, what this tells us really two things, important things, and I just want to put it to you this way. We're going to unpack it, but the passage teaches us some critical points. And, and I'm not going to give them to you yet. I'm just going to say them, so just listen up. The first point that he's making, because he was a tax collector, what the story's really saying is that anybody can change. In fact, the Bible speaks about this over and over and over again. Jesus meets everybody, and he'll meet anybody. But the second thing, and you don't need to go to the points till I tell you, okay? Don't jump ahead of me. But the second thing that he says is not just that anybody can change, but he says, for those who are changing, money and earthly goods can get in the way of that change. And so I wanna talk to you about those two things, because here you have a tax collector, which means anybody can change, we'll talk about that, but he's wealthy, and wealth can get in the way of that. So let's just talk about that first. Now you throw that up there, anybody can change. Now, the scripture says, I've already said, that this guy was what the, what the Bible calls a chief tax collector or an arch tax collector. What does that mean? Well, tax collectors were not regarded in the same way that tax collectors are now. I mean, even today, if you ask somebody, do you work, you know, if you ask somebody that works for the IRS, they're usually going to say, well, you know, I work for the government. Because the IRS isn't a super popular thing. But in this day... We're talking about tax collectors and their relationship with a society in those days that was something 
starkly different. In fact, it really is way beyond anything that you can imagine because the tax collectors in this day were employees, you might say, of an oppressive and conquering imperial Roman government, which had conquered and colonized their colonies, and they had subjugated the people. And these invaders, these Romans, they levied heavy taxes. And the taxes by no means were just taxes. They were inordinate. They were enormous. And so tax collectors were universally hated. In fact, you, you just see here, I made a note, they were seen and rightly so as exploiters and oppressors and apostates because they would skim off the top of this tax enormous amounts of money. They would, they would grow wealthy by taking advantage. And usually, these were Jewish people who, who begin to sympathize with the Roman government and work for the Roman government. And so, their Jewish, uh, their Jewish friends thought, these guys are traitors. This is how people looked at tax collectors. So, you look here at verse 7, and it says, all the people saw this and begin to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Why in the world is he talking to a man like Zacchaeus? Why would he even have words with this guy? He's betrayed our people. So you need to understand, here's what I'm saying to you. The moral majority hated tax collectors. The mainstream of society absolutely despised him. And yet this is the person that Jesus singles out. Now that means something. In fact, if you notice... Where I'm reading this from is Luke 19, and if you actually stand back and read the narrative and see the context here, just a few verses back, Jesus is entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Jesus is like, listen, he is like 10 days from the end of his life. In other words, the end of his life is rushing up to meet him. And he's going through a crowd of very moral people, very good people, but he singles out the tax collector, the traitor, and he says, I'm going to stay with you. Here is a whole crowd of good people. And all of these people look down their noses terribly at this guy. And yet Jesus says, this is the guy I want to spend time with. Now, guys, this is a fascinating thing. It is fascinating. If you begin to study the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that tax collectors are mentioned six times. And what's weird is tax collectors are not highly regarded. I've already said that. But every time Luke brings them up in Luke's Gospel, they're always mentioned positively. That's interesting to me because they're hated. Now, everybody hated them. Again, the liberals hated them. The conservatives hated them. Everybody hated them because of all the things we've said. And the Romans despised him. So they, the Romans, they would think, how could somebody stoop so low as to take this job? The Jews despised him because they're traitors, obviously. So, so Luke points out that Jesus doesn't despise them. In fact, in Luke 3.12, you notice this scripture. It says that tax collectors were the ones who came to be baptized. So Luke is trying to show you here, it's tax collectors who wanted to know Jesus. In Luke 5.27, notice it says that it was a tax collector by the name of Levi that Jesus walked up to and said, follow me. And Jesus actually makes him an apostle. 
It says in Luke 7, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard the words of Jesus, they acknowledged that God's way was right. Isn't that interesting? They it's the tax collectors that acknowledge God's way is right. But notice what it says. So they had been baptized by John, but the Pharisees and the experts of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So what, what Luke is saying here, you get what he's saying here. Do you know who the Pharisees and the Bible experts were? They were people more like me. They were people more like you. And yet it says it was the tax collectors that were able to hear Jesus. It was the tax collectors that acknowledged his way is right. And then, of course, you have Luke 15. And I'm giving you this background so you can see what Luke is doing here. Luke wants you to see something. In Luke 15, probably the most famous one, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. And in Luke 18, he gives this parable. He says that there were two men who went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And you know how it goes. The Pharisee exercises this prayer of incredible self-congratulation. And he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, like robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And he begins to talk about all that he does well. He fasts. He prays, but notice it says the tax collector, he didn't even look up to the sky. He just stood at a distance, but then Jesus says, I tell you that it's the tax collector and not the other who went away justified. Guys, this is amazing, and you've got to see this. Because really, you're going to see this only in Luke in this way. Luke is so concerned to bring this teaching out. It is in Luke that you have the parable of the good Samaritan. Everybody hates the Samaritans. But according to Luke, the Samaritan is the hero of the story. It's only in the gospel of Luke here that he points out in such a way that you have the prodigal son. And he's the hero of the story. And my point is, what's Luke getting at? What's the pattern? I want for you to see this. Write this down. The pattern is this. That Jesus is attracted to outlaws. And outlaws are attracted to Jesus. In other words, if I could just say it to you this way. Jesus is attracted to the people who most dislike religion. But they most like the gospel. And the people who most like religion most dislike the gospel. And so when the stories of Jesus Christ are brought to us, almost all the stories are outlaw stories. Whenever Jesus is talking to the moral majority, whenever he's talking to the respectable people, the main body of people, when he's talking to the people who are in the center of society, it's almost always unpleasant. Just read the gospels this year. He's almost always coming down hard on them. But the prodigals, with the poor, with the tax collectors, with the foreigners, with the prostitutes, with the pimps, with the people who have a checkered past. Listen, the nice people are offended. And the nasty people are attracted. And guys, you see this over and over and over and over again in the scripture. And I, I, it's so important. I have so much on my mind that I want for you to get this when you think about changing your life. I mean, do any of you remember, you might remember the scripture in Matthew chapter 11. 
I have it on the screen here, where Jesus is talking to communities, and he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, what's stunning here is, how many of you remember what Sodom and Gomorrah is? Here's what's stunning. Sodom and Gomorrah are places of incredible rebellion. I mean, unbelievable immorality and sin. Well, what's, what's Bethsaida and what's Chorazin? Well, I'm going to tell you now, they were fairly small towns, and there were lots of nice people in those towns. In fact, the Gospels tell us that these are the people that came out to hear Jesus when he was there, and they came out in droves. These are the people that packed the church service. Now, here's what Jesus is essentially saying. He's saying, it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than the red light districts in the mega cities of the world. Woe to you, little white picket fence churches that are filled compared to Sodom. Guys, that is shocking. Now the question is, why? Why is that true? Here's the answer, and this is an insight that you've got to get. Write this down. Unless you know you're a moral failure you're going to want religion, not the gospel. Write that down. Unless you know that you're a moral failure, you're going to want religion, not the gospel. And by the way, 50% of the gospel is you're a sinner, and your sin is worse than you can possibly imagine. You're in trouble. By the way, what is the difference between religion and the gospel? It's all the difference in the world. For example, have you ever noticed when a major magazine or PBS or anybody that does a presentation, for example, on religions, whenever they do a presentation on religions, you know what they call it? They usually call it something like man's search for God or our long search for God. And that's because the world, this is what they think of when they think of religion. The world thinks... Well, I'm searching for God. I'm seeking God. I'm looking for him. And then they'll say, well, what's wrong with God? The fact that I have no certainty in my life, the fact that I have no happiness and I'm not spiritually fulfilled, they say it must be God's fault because I've been trying. I've been following the rules. I'll never forget, I had a friend from England. His name was Simon. He wrote a blog. His blog was called, Who the Hell is God? atheist skeptic, and he would take on, and he traveled the world. He went to all these places saying, I'm searching for God. At the end of the day, he ends up in Fresno, California. He stayed with my wife and I for a while in our home. I was talking to him about it. He said, well, what's wrong with God? I've tried to find him. Why aren't I fulfilled? I'm searching for God. See, now, friends, I'm going to say this to you. That's religion. That's a religious way of looking for God. Here's the gospel. The gospel is, I'm lost, I'm a moral failure, and I'm not even looking for God, and God has now come to me. That's the gospel. A moral failure. And how do you know, as a Christian, maybe watching today or sitting in this room, wherever you are, how do you know whether you're religious or you're gospel-oriented? And I'm going to tell you, it's as simple as this. 80 to 90% of Americans, if you ask the question, are you more loving and more unselfish than most people? Most Americans would say, well, yeah, 
I am. And some of you hopefully are adding it up already. How do you know whether you're religious or you're gospel oriented? Well, just answer this. Do you feel like you're better than most people? That you're more decent than most people? That you're more honest than most people? You look down at somebody. Is there somebody in the world that you look at and you'd say, oh, they're, they're marginal. You're better than most people. And let's just be honest about that as you think about how you live your life. And guys, I'm going to say, it depends very much on your politics. So let's meddle in politics for just a minute. If you're very politically minded, then what you think is, you, you think, well, these people over here are the problem with our society. If you're more liberal, then you're upset with everybody on the right. If you're conservative, then you're upset with everybody on the left. If you're moral, you're very upset with the immoral people. And everybody religiously is doing something to feel superior to most other people. And what Jesus is saying is, nobody is superior. Nobody. Jesus is attracted to outlaws, and outlaws are attracted to him. The thing is, everybody's an outlaw. And unless you know you're a moral failure, you're going to want religion, but you will not want the gospel. Now listen, anyone can change, but I want to say it to you this way. It's only anyone's that can change. If you think you're a somebody, change will not happen. Not true change. But people who know they're just an anyone. Those are the kind of people that Jesus reveals himself to. And you notice it says, when Zacchaeus changed, he really changed. And you saw it. Jesus said to him, look here, he says, today salvation has come to this house. How did he know? Because look at what it says. He says, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay four times back the amount. In other words, Zacchaeus' attitude has totally changed. His attitude toward his wealth and money has totally changed. Now, some people say, why is it so important that I give my money? Well, Jesus talks about this over and over and over again, that where your money is, there your heart is. Where you put your money is where your heart's allegiance really lies. In fact, Jesus called it a God. That's why it's so difficult to talk about money to people because, because money really is an idol, whether we, whether we want to believe that or not. And so Jesus says, be very careful because wealth can get in the way. And so I just want to challenge you here. That this is what Zacchaeus is dealing with. So write this down. What he's saying is, yes, anybody can change, but be aware that all your earthly stuff can get in the way of your change. Why? Because having lots of stuff can deceive you into believing that you don't have a lot of need. Another thing you find when you read the Gospels, for example, is that the Gospels don't actually talk that much about sex, but they talk all about money over and over and over again. And God says, if you come to me, I may have you give away 90% of all your money, or I may have you give away 50%, or I may have you give away 10%, no less than 10%, the scripture says. But God says, you can't come to me unless you're willing to do that. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of our hearts. 
And he says, that's the only way I know where your heart really lies. So he says, maybe I'm going to ask you to give it away or maybe not. Now, guys, why, well, the money thing is a big thing. And I want to take a minute here because money creates this sense in our lives where if we have a lot of it or we're comfortable, it can be a kind of almost, it can cause an almost spiritual righteousness for most of us. Because money is one of the ways that we convince ourselves that we're better than most other people. For example, we see somebody who's houseless or homeless, and we have this thought inside of ourselves that, well, we're not as bad off as that guy. That guy must be using drugs. That guy must be drinking. Money or wealth immediately creates a sense of superiority, and we all do it. And even if you have less, if you know somebody that's wealthy, you tend to look at them with a sense of authority. In fact, it's really funny how we do this with people. If somebody's very wealthy, there's an automatic assumption that they're smart people, that they must really know what they're doing. Because there's this weird thing in our psychology that money attaches itself to moral goodness and to intellectual goodness and to power and authority. Why? Because there is a spiritual and biblical cord that's tied to money. And God says that has to be cut. If you think you're a somebody because you have, stop it. And what happens is when you come to Jesus, you begin to realize, wait a minute, this is just money now. This is not my identity. This is not my comfort. This is not my consolation. Money is not the way I deal with, with my problems. You know the jokes that people say? You know, when you get depressed, what do you want to go do? You want to go buy a new outfit, right? <laughs> Now, those are jokes. We laugh at it, but the truth is, that's adoration. That's a way of consoling yourself with your wealth. And it's a way of insulating yourself from the troubles of the world. It's worship. It's religious. And, and the danger is, the more money you have, the greater reason you have to say, I'm smarter. I'm savvier. I'm better. So... Anyone can change, but earthly stuff can get in the way of that change because you're not willing to really look at yourself the way you ought to. Now, how do you know that Zacchaeus is totally changed? It says, he stood up and he looked at the Lord and said, money has so changed his life, he says immediately, I'm gonna give half my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm gonna pay back 400%. So here's the question. How do you get salvation throwing, flowing through your life and change flowing through your life in such a way that this kind of thing would happen. And I'm going to end with that. How do, you, how do you get here where this guy is? That There's obvious something that's happened and he's changing his life. Three things have to happen. And I'm going to use this story as a metaphor. And I'm going to give these to you. I'm going to talk to you about, first, you've got to be willing to climb a tree like he did. Second, you've got to get over the crowd and third, you've got to take Jesus home. Are you guys ready? All right, let's begin with the first one. Write this down. You have to climb a tree. You have to climb a tree. Why? Because the first and biggest barrier between our hearts and receiving and experiencing Christ's salvation is our pride and it's our dignity. And when Zacchaeus got up in that tree, he left his dignity behind. And you know that's true. Because even, if an, even in our culture today, if you were an adult 
and you were out in public and you went and climbed a tree, let's say you're at a parade and you saw the mayor climb a tree, you'd think, well, that's weird. In fact, there would be newspaper articles and blog posts about, what if you saw the president of the United States climb up a tree to get a good look at things? You'd think, no, because children climb trees. Adults don't do that. And when Zacchaeus in that culture climbs a tree, I'm going to tell you, he paid an enormous price. The price of ridicule. The price of humility. He lost his dignity in order to see Jesus. Now, let me say this to you. That's the way it still is today. That's the way it always will be if you want to see Jesus. You cannot have Jesus' salvation flowing through your life unless you're willing to climb a tree. You can't. In fact, Jesus illustrated it this way when he said, he called a child and he had him stand among his disciples and the people, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that powerful? He's not just saying, I wish you'd be like a child. He's saying, unless you become like a child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Humility, ridicule, shame. You've got to be willing to, let me ask you, have you climbed a tree for Jesus? Have you been willing to lay down your ego for the sake of the gospel. You know when I ask you, for example, who's your one? And I say, write down a name of somebody to pray for. Some of you are like, man, I can't, I can't talk to somebody. I'm afraid of what they're gonna think of me. Don't you see? Don't you see that you're not willing to climb a tree? Don't you see that your ego is getting in the way? He says, unless you become like this little child, you're not gonna even see the kingdom of God. What's happened to this guy? This tax collector that goes from exploiting people to climbing trees to see Jesus. See, change, guys, I'm going to say this to you. Change requires humility. You have to be willing to not stand on your own dignity. You have to swallow your pride unless you change and become like that little child. So you have to climb a tree. What's the second thing? Write this down. You have to get over the crowd. You have to get over the crowd. Now, what I really like about this account is the main thing that's keeping Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus is, well, what is? What's the main thing keeping him from seeing Jesus? It's the crowd, right? He can't see through the crowd. What's so helpful about that? Well, one of the things I've already said is that ego keeps, keeps you from changing, Ego will do it. You don't want to be like a child. You don't want to lose your dignity. But the second problem we have with change is most of us, we can't get over the crowd. We want to look good in front of the crowd. How does Zacchaeus overcome this barrier? Zacchaeus finds a way to look at Jesus apart from the crowd. Not only did he not let the crowd stop him from seeing Jesus, but he didn't try and see Jesus through the crowd. He would go to a vantage point above the crowd by which he could get over it. And he did. And my goodness, he sees Jesus directly. Some of you, you don't, you don't want to come to Jesus because you're afraid of what the crowd thinks. 
or you want to intermix with the crowd, but you're not doing what it takes to get over. And I'm saying, no, you got to be willing to do that. Number one, you got to climb a tree. Number two, you got to get over the crowd. Finally, write this down. The scripture says in this story that you have to take Jesus home. You have to take him home. Now, that's an interesting one because what does it really mean to receive Jesus? You notice here, Jesus doesn't look at Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, you need to now confess that you believe in me. Notice he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, or Zacchaeus, you need to accept me. See, those are the things that we're used to thinking about. You need to believe in him. You need to accept him. You need to accept him into your heart. What What does he say? It says, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And when it says, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And verse 7 says, and all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, guys, this is important, what, what you see there. Because there are two little words, welcomed and guest. You know what they have to do with? They have to do with room and board. It means that Jesus actually came and lived with Zacchaeus. And he at least stayed overnight there and ate there. And Jesus is saying, I'm coming home with you. And it teaches us something. It teaches us how change really works. And the order of how change works. It teaches us what what change accomplishes. See, what you notice here first is Zacchaeus doesn't say, well, Jesus, I'm going to stop cheating people. Okay, now will you come home with me? No, is that what happened? No, Jesus says, I'm coming home with you. Zacchaeus hasn't even repented. You would think that the evangelical thing to do is Zacchaeus should have invited Jesus into his life. But guess what? Jesus invited himself into Zacchaeus' life. He doesn't say, well, now if you get your life cleaned up and stop cheating, I'm going to come and live with you. No, Jesus says, I'm coming to live with you. And then Zacchaeus says, good, then I'll stop cheating. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see how important that is? In religiousness, we've even turned our our coming to God on the basis of our own terms. I accept him. I invite him. No, Jesus says, I choose you. Now change. I come into you. I want to be with you in spite of your sin, in spite of your record. I guess here's what I'm saying. Here's what I thought of this week. How many remember that old movie, The Wizard of Oz? And do you remember the great and powerful Oz? I'm saying that Jesus doesn't say, hey, bring me the wicked witch of the West and her broom and, you know, the slippers, and then I'll bless you. That's not God. That's not what God says. Instead, Jesus says, in spite of your flaws, in spite of your record, just on the knowledge of who Jesus is, just on the knowledge that you might repent, Jesus says, I'm giving you myself now. And what's the response of a changed heart? Joy. 
It says, so he came down and he says, look, Lord, he came down gladly because there's a lightning bolt that's gone through Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus says, God, because you love me, I want to change. Not, not because I change, you now love me. Now, see, you got to get the order right. That's important, or it's not the gospel. In fact, did you know the whole book of Galatians is written about this, what the gospel is and isn't. And Paul in the book of Galatians says, if we are an angel of the Lord should preach to you a gospel other than this, be cursed. And Paul outlines the order. The order is so important. So let me put it to you this way, because I want for you to get this. And I want, this needs to be the basis of you changing your life, it's this. Write this down. The love of Jesus Christ is not the basis for change, but it is the dynamic for change. The love of Jesus Christ is the dynamic for a changed life. The change is a result that's based out of love. This is why Zacchaeus could say, look, Lord, because of because you've said you're coming to my house, I'm so moved that I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody, does he say I'm just going to pay him back? No, what does he say? He says, I'm going to give 400% back. God may ask you to do that. See, it's a response. And Jesus says, now it's clear salvation has come to you. This is a sign. Today, salvation has obviously come into this house. Salvation first, then the change, which leads to the second thing. And I want you to write this down. We'll be done. Write this down. If you've really met the love of Jesus Christ, it's going to change you, if you've really met it. Now, if you've met religion, that's not going to change you. If you've met just church going, that may not change you. But if you've met the love of Jesus Christ, if you've really met his grace. Now, do you know how you meet his grace? You will not meet his grace unless you realize what a terrible sinner you really are. Until God brings you face to face with your own immorality, with your own sin, you'll never see the need of your life. And you'll always feel like you have it together. But when you see your own need, you see the need for grace. And when you understand grace, guys, do you see the reason people (laughs) are so aghast with Jesus? To go home and eat with somebody and participate in this person's life, to completely participate? They saw Jesus willing to participate with this sinner. In those days... I can't wait till you guys go to Israel with us and we look at this stuff. If you can save your money so you can go on this trip, but we'll go every year. But in those days, the evening meal was the center of life. It was the center of family life. The long evening meal. Why? Think about it. There were no electric lights. There might have been lit torches and lamps. But I'm going to tell you this. Nothing happened after you ate. You didn't turn on the television. You didn't hang out. You didn't play board games. No, the long evening meal. You ate all evening, and then you went to bed. See, the evening meal was the heart of family life. And so for you to invite someone to the evening meal, not only are you asking for intimacy, 
but you're bringing that person into the daily rhythms of the family life. See, here's what Jesus is saying to you and me in this story. He's saying, if you want change, you just can't come and meet me on Sunday. I want to be in the rhythm of your life. It's the long evening meal. I want to be in every single nook and cranny of your life. And every single area of your life has to be affected by my grace. This creative changing and shaping of Zacchaeus' life. What causes him to say, whatever's happened, I give half my possessions to the poor and I will pay back four times. See, do you see? Zacchaeus is not just doing what's required. He's fallen in love. You don't act this way unless you've fallen in love. Do you guys remember that very embarrassing Oprah Winfrey moment where Tom Cruise was jumping on the couch, yelling, I have fallen in love? Now, that was embarrassing. But there is something that happens to a person that falls in love. They throw away all inhibition. It it changes everything. What they're willing to do to communicate, you're the most important thing to me. Now, what does Jesus say? We'll close with this scripture. We'll be done. What does Jesus say to you? What does he say to me? Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Let's read it together. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now again, there's eating. What does eating mean? Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, I want you just to believe in me. No, what he's saying is, I have to get into every nook and cranny of your life and I want to change everything. How do you know? How do you know you've been changed by grace? How do you spend your money? I want to get in every nook and cranny of your life. It's 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 your money. It's your thought life, guys. It's your sex life. It's your family life. It's your vocation. It's the jobs you take. It's the jobs you turn down. Don't you see? Everything has to be affected by the gospel. And if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not really Lord at all. That's what he says. Everything has to be affected. And so here he is. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will have a meal with him. By the way, do you know who this is written to? Who's he writing to here? He's writing to the church. He's not writing to non-believers. We use this scripture for non-believers. Oh, you don't know Jesus? Behold, he stands at the door and he knocks at your heart. Come in, let him in. No, no, no. This is revelation. This is a letter written to the church. It's written to you. What does it mean? If you want the change of Jesus Christ flowing through your life, you've got to say, I'm going to do more than just meet him on Sunday. You have to bring him into the very center of your life. He's got to be the point of gravity for your life. Jesus wants to be the ultimate insider inside your life. But in order for you to make him the insider, he had to become the ultimate outsider. And he was born in a manger. We just got done celebrating that. And he was on a cross forsaken by his father. 
The ultimate insider became an outsider so that you could know Jesus, taking the penalty for our sin. I'd like to pray with you. Can we do that? Father, thank you for taking our penalty upon yourself. That you could look at us no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, and you can say, you want to know us and you want us to walk with you. I pray for every person here that they would just understand the simple message that, man, anybody can change. My goodness, if Zacchaeus can change, can't we all? Help our hearts to be gripped by love, by grace, and to be moved to the point where we're willing to abandon everything else for your sake. It would be as if we hate everything else compared to how much we love you. Help us to live our lives for you. Strengthen us, Lord. And would you just repeat this prayer after me? Jesus, I want you to come and live within me. Come into my house. Let's eat together. Be my Lord of everything.